Hi, I'm Tina. And I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race. Last episode, we talked a little bit about the science behind athletics and race. At least that's one of our interests. Uh, We had a number of you ask for more info about that, and your voices have been heard. So today, we will tackle a number of common thoughts. Some are possibly true, some are false, about athletics and race. So we thought we could start out today by simply listing some of those common sense or common myths that we hear circulating in American culture about athletics and race. Um, I've heard a bunch of things, the first of which would be something like African-Americans must have a gene that makes them good at playing basketball or at playing football. Another one, if you want to go more, more Darwinian, is that people whose ancestors were slaves were perhaps somehow made tougher through slavery and artificially selected for things like strength or endurance, which in this day and age translates into being better at something like football or basketball. There was all kinds of hype leading up to the completion of the first draft of the Human Genome Project at the end of the 20th century, and that created excitement and hope that we would be finding genes for all kinds of characteristics, including athletic characteristics. And it was thought at that time that maybe we'd untangle all of the ideas about race and athletics through our ability to sequence the DNA. This reminded many people of the early 20th century eugenicists that were looking for the genetics of various kinds of skills like musical ability or dancing or skill in needlework. And we'll talk more about that in a later episode. Now, I think I remember hearing something about uh, a study where there were some Scandinavian long-distance runners and they compared them to Kenyan long-distance runners. Uh, I, I think I remember hearing that Africans have like a higher composition of slow twitch muscles in their legs more than Northern Europeans have, or Northern Europeans have fast twitch muscles, or Kenyans are more efficient runners, Scandinavians are good at lifting weights, or there's another idea that white males that are, you know, Scottish are better at golf because they have a lower center of gravity, and that's why they invented golf in Scotland. Aren't these true? Well, that's an interesting uh, jumble of ideas about what makes for biological differences between groups that might account for athletic superiority or inferiority between different racial groups. None of that makes a whole lot of sense because if you go back to some of our earlier broadcasts, you'll remember that we don't really have biological races. What we have is social races, and so when we start to make these biological distinctions between these cultural groups, we get into a lot of trouble. But surely you guys have heard other stuff like this, Oh, yeah, like the stuff I heard from one of my former students in the race class who was an Olympic athlete, that sitting at a meal at the Olympic Village, she was hearing other athletes talk about the fact that blacks excel in the sprinting exercises and can jump because they have an extra tendon or muscle in their legs that no other racial group has. Yeah, so that extra tendon thing is something I've heard many times. It comes up almost every time I teach the um, race and athletics section of my class on race here at UA. In fact, just this semester, I had a student in that class go home over fall break, and she was talking to her neighbor about learning about race being a social construction, and, and the neighbor brought up this exact example. She said, well, that might be true that race is a social construct, but what about athletics and the fact that black people actually have an extra tendon in their legs, and that's why they can run so fast? And my student was like, what? Oh, okay, this is something people really think. That's the kind of thinking that got Jimmy the Greek Snyder fired from CBS back in 1988 
when he started talking about black athletic superiority and was making claims about breeding blacks during slavery, accounting for what we see in athletic performance among African Americans today. The black is the better athlete, and he's bred to be the better athlete because this goes back all the way to the Civil War, when during the slave trading, the big, the owner, the slave owner would, 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 would breed his big black to his big woman so that he could have a, a, big, a, big, a big black kid, see? I, I vaguely remember Jimmy the Greek coming up in a context even more recently. Is that right, Jim, just in this last uh, presidential campaign? Yeah, Donald Trump just last June talked about Jimmy the Greek. This was in the midst of a off-screen interview that he was doing just after he had been using various racial slurs to talk about Elizabeth Warren. He said to the interviewer, whatever you do, don't apologize. You never hear me apologize, do you? That's what killed Jimmy the Greek way back. Remember, he was doing okay till he said he was sorry. Uh, Okay. And this isn't, I mean, I've heard this even in the context outside of uh, what we would think of as contact sports or really rough sports. In fact, um, I've heard the line that uh, people from East and Southeast Asia, uh, people of Jewish descent, they're just better at sports like table tennis or games like chess or go um, because they have some sort of biological proclivity to concentrate for very long periods of time. Uh, yeah, but even if you go back uh, just a few decades in contact sports, uh, you find sort of a different set of assumptions about race and athletics. I, I remember one, and it really wasn't that long ago, that there was no way that an African-American could play at a thinking man's position like quarterback in football. Uh, in fact, I think, wasn't it just the last episode, we talked a little bit about how that played out here at the University of Alabama. So maybe we could just start with that stuff right there, the the assumption that uh, black men could not be effective quarterbacks because they weren't thinkers at a position that required both quick processing and decision-making. In fact, if I remember, uh, our, our mutual friend Rush Limbaugh made some sort of a scandal for himself uh, back in 2003 because he made comments exactly along these lines when he was a commentator at ESPN, which I vaguely remember. Oh, yeah, we have a clip here of Limbaugh taking a position on uh, Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Donovan McNabb. The sum total of what you're all saying is that Donovan McNabb is, re- is regressing. He's going backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and my, I, I'm sorry to say this, I don't think he's been that good from the get-go. I think what we've had here is a little social concern in the NFL. I think the media has been very desirous that a black quarterback do well. Mm -hmm. We're interested in black coaches and black quarterbacks doing well. I think there is a little hope invested in McNabb, and he got a lot of credit for the performance of this team that he really didn't deserve. Yeah, and uh, of course, I've heard a lot of that. I was actually at Alabama when the very first black quarterback got a a starting position uh, at the University of Alabama. That was Walter Lewis back in 1980. And uh, more recently, there was a tremendous controversy in the late 1990s uh, on the Alabama campus and among the fan base over benching a fairly accomplished black throwing quarterback who was getting ready to set records, passing records at the University of Alabama He was benched as a senior in favor of a younger white quarterback who was primarily a running quarterback. And this created all kinds of buzz in the community. Yeah, and you know, when we look at record-setting black quarterbacks in the present time, like Jalen Hurts here at Alabama or JT Barrett at Ohio State, we might think, oh, well, 
times are changing. Maybe that kind of blatant discrimination about black athletes is something of the past, but I'm not sure it's going away as fast as we might think. There's still, I think, a deep-seated belief that black athletes are inferior at things like ice hockey or as baseball pitchers or as swimmers. Even though Venus and Serena Williams dominate in women's tennis, for instance, and even though Arthur Ashe was perhaps one of the greatest men's tennis players of all time, there's still a sense that tennis is not a black person's sport, that black men in particular can't play tennis. Yeah, but it does seem like we're better now, right? I mean, so one of the things about athletics that we started off with was the assumption that African Americans were, on the whole, just better than any other race. That can't possibly be racist, right? That assumption? Oh, Eric, you naive, simple historian, you. Um, yeah, there are plenty of people, I think, who would who would say, why would we talk about racism and stereotypes about black athletes being superior in the same breath? Isn't it a good thing? Isn't it a positive valuation to say that African-Americans are somehow superior or better at sports? And why would that ever go hand in hand with ideas of racism? But um, there was a study in that was published in 2007 by a couple sports psychologists headed up by someone named Jane Sheldon at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And it looked at exactly this. It was sampling about a 600 adults, uh, random, and found that the more people responded with an agreement that there is some genetic underpinning for a perceived race difference in sports ability, that is, the more people believe that there is something biological that makes black athletes superior, the more, on the other hand, they evinced prejudice and negative stereotyping of black people in other realms of life. And so, although perhaps there's this sense out there that it's a good thing to say that black people are better than, than white people at sports, this idea seems to also go hand in hand with a lot of negative ideas and negative stereotypes about black people. Here's how um, Sheldon and colleagues said it. This is a quote from their paper. White's belief in an innate athletic difference between blacks and whites may operate as a backhanded compliment and likely serves to help perpetuate prejudice and negative racial stereotypes. And I think they really hit something on, hit the nail on the head there. So wait a second, Joe. It sounds like what you're saying is that even the seeming compliment of a white person saying to a black athlete, hey, you're just biologically better than I am at basketball. Or actually, uh, if I if I can go back to the 90s, a movie that... I love back in the day with Wesley Snipes in it, White Men Can't Jump. It, wait, is that still perpetuating racial stereotypes? That's not scientifically grounded at all? In the 2010 book by Guy Harrison, uh, Race and Reality, his chapter on athletics is titled Black Men Can't Jump. And he literally starts the chapter off by citing chapter and verse of how well white people have done in jumping events internationally and also citing the fact that they have totally dominated both world record and Olympic competitions for the high jump, which kind of puts the lie to the fact that uh, white men can't jump. He, of course, is building a straw man argument to suggest that whites have some sort of biological jumping advantage right, over blacks. No good. <laughs> he obviously comes to a very... Uh, biocultural that's very heavily slated on the cultural side of the uh, explanation for why some groups of people, some people, excel in certain athletic endeavors. In the book The Sports Gene by Epstein, he also talks a great deal about genetics that may in fact enhance athletic performance. And there's no 
question, but that there are important genetic inputs into the ability to perform athletic endeavors. I don't have the genes to be tall. I got short genes, okay? <laughs> and so I was never going to be great at volleyball or basketball or any team that, that requires significant body size. I'm also slow as a slug. But again, we have an important biological input into athletic performance. But the important thing is, and one of the things that Epstein focuses on, is the importance of practice and practice and practice. The he goes into the whole 10,000-hour principle to make the argument that there isn't a sports gene. What there is is a predisposition for our bodies to be able to perform certain ways, and then you have to take that and practice your event and practice it and practice it. And you have to have the economic resources to practice it and the time and the ability to be able to go ahead and, and do pursue your particular athletic dream. So it sounds like we've touched again on something that we might call racial essentialism or determinism based on genes for race. In fact, I think we talked about that a couple of episodes ago, but um, maybe we should state it here again. So how can we know for sure that, for example, people from Hawaii aren't born with a gene for swimming faster than everybody else or something like that? The most important fact, as we discussed in our discussion of the Human Genome Project, is that we know that genes aren't packaged into bags that we call race. We don't have nice biological divisions based on the American census categories for race. So if there are genes that do exist, there is no reason to suppose that they would be packaged into those racial categories okay so we've it seems like we're not okay with genetic determinism i i would suppose then that that other assumption that i've heard about kenyans and scandinavians having different types of muscles the flat, fast twitch muscles versus the slow twitch muscles is that also as flawed as all these assumptions about genes for different kinds of sports? Pretty much these athletic genes that help us with our performance run in families, and these families live all over the world. If you look at elite sprinters of any race, any skin color from any destination, they have about 80% fast-twitch muscle cells, whereas elite endurance athletes of every race have about 80% slow-twitch cells. So just a minute ago, we were talking about ESPN's coverage of Donovan McNabb and the pretty blatant racial stereotyping of Rush Limbaugh. But I think we ought to focus, too, for a second on a more, you might say, pernicious sort of racial prejudice that hangs around a lot in sports media right now. Um, a minute ago, Jim mentioned Guy Harrison's book, Race and Reality, which came out in 2010. And I love from that book Harrison's discussion of the coverage of the 2008 Summer Olympics. Um, he talks in that book about the differences between media coverage of Michael Phelps, who won eight gold medals for swimming, and Usain Bolt, who was a Jamaican sprinter who also had a really fantastic sort of um, breakout performance at, at the Olympics. So he notes that the coverage around Phelps talked about how he was successful because of his mother's dedication and because of his admiration in childhood for Mark Spitz and because of his tireless dedication and his hard work. And there was much less discussion of Michael Phelps's body proportions. You know, there was some of that, but there was much less discussion of this idea that he might have a biological propensity or a physical propensity for being an excellent swimmer. Contrast that with Usain Bolt, uh, the Jamaican sprinter who was 
also wonderfully successful, most of the media coverage around him, or I should say much of it, uh, focused on this particular sprinting gene that is purportedly common in Jamaican populations. And there was a lot of speculation about whether or not he was so successful because he had this sprinting gene. And so for Bolt, it was all about his biology sort of predisposing him to being an excellent athlete, whereas for Phelps, it was all about his hard work and dedication. So to me, that was just a really striking example of the way in which media portrays black athletes' success as sort of merely a product of biology and white athletes' success as a glorified sort of product of their hard work and dedication. I would imagine, too, that was there a lot more discussion about Usain Bolt's physique versus Michael Phelps? Although there was a lot of talk about Phelps's body size and shape being well adapted, particularly for the butterfly event that he excelled at. A few years ago, here at the University of Alabama, there was a white quarterback by the name of A.J. McCarron and a black running back by the name of Trent Richardson. But these were two extremely elite college football players. And it was amazing when I was teaching the race course, I could tell the kids to go and listen to the announcers of the Alabama game on the Saturday and listen to how they describe how hard A.J. McCarron worked to play his position and how Trent Richardson had these natural gifts to be a running back. It was just a complete black and white distinction between the two. And yet they were both operating at this incredibly high athletic level. So somehow the black body gets uh, named as the source of the high performance where the white mind or the white work ethic gets named as the source of the high performance. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, and so you don't have to look far to find this kind of bias in the media, listeners. Look for it yourselves. Um, And again, this could be construed as something positive, but I think along with this idea of a biological superiority in athletics comes the idea also that perhaps African Americans can only excel in things that involve physical prowess. And so there's a, a negative edge to that stereotype as well. There is another side to this. It's been brought up by a number of people. One of the best cases was made by John Hoberman and Darwin's athletes. And he describes how giving athletic credibility to blacks allowed whites starting in the 19th century to take away intellectual credibility. So it's like it's a zero-sum game. If you push the scale up in terms of athletics, then you drop it down on the other side in terms of intellectual ability. And so there is a, you know, white men can't jump, black men can't think kind of mentality. And it seems like that's drummed into the culture. It has been for at least a century. And so we keep repeating it, even in the way we do our sports reporting over and over and over again. We want to turn now to our colleague, Tina. You might remember her. She was one of our original crew, but she's not here at the University of Alabama, so she hasn't been able to join us here in the studio. Tina is interviewing a former student of hers about race and athletics from her office up at Juniata College in Pennsylvania. Tina, take it away. Um, So today I'm here with Tyler Smith, as Jim noted. Um, He's a recent graduate of Juniata College in Huntingdon, Pennsylvania. He has a degree in politics and community development. He's also planning to attend graduate school in the near future to study 
Gender and Race in America. He's from the suburbs of Philadelphia, and he is a strong Philadelphia sports fan and has been a sports fanatic his entire life. Currently, he's back at Juniata College facilitating a healthy masculinity group on campus to have discussions with young men about social issues as well as how conventional masculinity influences a young man's lived experience. So I want to welcome Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys. So Tyler, I wanted to invite you to the podcast today because you were in my Constructing Race and Ethnicity class last year. Oh, thank you for the plug. (laughs) And so I really wanted to have you on because I remember you being a strong voice in the classroom related to this idea of race and athleticism. I recall you being really outspoken in class when we hit this section of the of the course and so I really wanted you to kind of reiterate what your high school experiences were and more broadly just what your experience with athleticism and being an athlete yourself to certain extent through your lifetime so can you share this with our podcast listeners yes um yeah so my whole life I breathe sports I used to just watch sports center for four hours a day which was the same thing every hour Um, But I would do anything to listen and watch sports and be a huge sports fan. Anytime I could go out and play any sport, I would. So when this topic came up in class, I was always curious because there was this relatively easy conversation about race and sports that was happening within my predominantly white community. Yeah, it was always interesting to hear. So why, why is the NBA full of majority African-American players. And, you know, I was always curious about that. Yeah. So when we came up to this year class, it gave me a lot more of the context about the biological side that I did not know beforehand. One thing I definitely remember in high school is we had a pretty terrible football team. And then one year we had a outstanding African-American running back and he led our team to the best record it had had in years. And he was almost propped up as the savior. And it was, oh, we'll be okay because now we have someone who is meant to be playing this position. And all of the white students just accepted that and took that for what it was. In terms of that, I've noticed a lot of my other white colleagues who would kind of drop into other sports that weren't dominated by African-American students. So I grew up playing lacrosse, which is a predominantly white sport, although it is Native American in tradition. Yeah, so you would see a lot of these white athletes just kind of accept this. Well, you know, we might not be able to excel at this, so let's try and find another sport and go for that. So tell me a little bit more about your high school. What was the demographic and what the other surrounding high schools might have looked like? I think we discussed this a little Mm -hmm. bit. So yeah, I went to a a very not diverse high school. Um, It was predominantly affluent white students and a couple of the surrounding high schools were more diverse and had different socioeconomic statuses as well. I actually remember I met a guy here at, at college who played against my high school basketball team, and he was from one of the surrounding schools that was a predominantly African-American basketball team, and they used to take our team as a joke, and our team was a warm-up game for them because they saw it as this inferior team that was not as good at basketball as they were. Yes, there was a lot of difficulty among the my fellow white students of accepting why they weren't seen as good enough or they didn't see themselves as good enough athletes to compete in the sports of football and basketball and a few others. So what were the conversations around that? Yeah, so you guys mentioned it earlier a little bit about the idea of having an extra muscle in the leg. I remember accepting that as just a fact of nature is that African-American athletes had an extra muscle and that's, oh, okay, you know, and it was easy for that. 
um, during this class, I shared all this information with a news writer in this town who's been covering high school sports for a long time. And, you know, he easily went and I said, you know, I shared some of the information that we had learned. And he said, well, why is that that throughout my lifetime, I've seen African-Americans rise and take over the NBA? You know, there has to be something. It's it's it, there's too much for it to not be something. And the ease at accepting that there was some sort of natural difference is was incredible to me because, you know, there was never any sort of research done. It was just, oh, yeah, OK, that explains why that we're seeing more African-Americans play basketball and not the hard work and not anything like that. Um, so it becomes natural in this dialogue. Exactly. It just and it was it was an easy answer to a complicated question, which I tend to find a lot of people do in the discussion of race in general within this country. So Tyler, following up with this, we we get kind of the background of your experience with sports as well as high school experiences and exposures to the mythology, right, surrounding race and athleticism. So can you give us a sense of how taking certain class, how did that change your perception uh, in relation to sports and athleticism? So one of the first classes I took here in the sociology department was a class called Minority Experience taught by um, Dr. Cynthia Merriweather DeBreeze. And it kind of forced you to look inward about your own ethnicity and where that came from. And as a white student, I didn't really do that very much, or we didn't really have that in my high school or in any of the other classes I took here. And then once I entered into this race course that you teach, for me, it, it became almost the answer or the start of the answer to an incredibly complicated question of the racial history of the U.S. as well as what that means today and how people think about it, and how people talk about it. So for me, it was it was very helpful to first learn the biological history behind it and the history of genes and such, and then to see it progress into how that's talked about today and why it's talked about the way it is today. Yeah, I've been eating it up ever since, and it's kind of changed what I wanted to do because of that class. So Tyler, I just want to thank you for being our guest today on the podcast. Um, I just really appreciate you giving us space to talk about this from a real lived experience. So we just really appreciate your time that you've spent talking with us today. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me, and thank you for what you're doing. Thanks, Tyler. We also want to take time to recognize that these shifts come in historical moments, right? So there used to be all white Jewish basketball leagues, for example, right? At one point in history in the early to mid 1900s, I believe. And so that was a space for these immigrant Jews who were really adept at playing basketball. And so we really need to keep that in mind that this happens historically with ebbs and flows, aside from this idea of race and athleticism being coupled in really interesting ways and intricate ways that we should pay attention to. Of course, the explanation was that it was the biological artful dodger characteristic that the Jews had perfected biologically through their genes before coming to the U.S., and that's why they were so good at basketball. Guy Harrison says there's no reason to assume that the NFL and NBA are the best measures of human athleticism, but they happen to be two of the most popular sports that are performed and, and watched in the U.S. at this point in time. And so we focus on those two sports as measures of athletic ability where there is an overrepresentation of African Americans relative to the population. 
his point is, why don't we instead look at rodeo riding as the best measure of athleticism? I mean, it would make just as much sense to try and link that cultural piece of the puzzle, the whichever sport it is that we're going to uh, that we're going to look at, and tie that up with our cultural category of race. It makes just as much sense to pick anything else that you want to pick as opposed to those two, but those two are popular. And so that's what everybody thinks is the indicator. Absolutely. So if it's not genes or fast twitch muscle fibers or extra tendons, then what is it? Why do we see this over-representation of African-Americans in American sports? Historically, I think what we can say is that African-Americans have had opportunities quite limited, especially in the United States, and have had some opportunities reinforced as positives. For instance, getting out of the ghetto by playing sports. Getting out of slavery by boxing for your slave owner. Literally being emancipated because of your ability at an athletic event. It's had a long history of of being a successful avenue for African Americans. So take uh, people of Indian descent, really, really good chess players. Is that because they have a gene for chess? No. It's because the cultural narrative there is if you want to show that you are really successful in life in general, then you'll be really successful in this particular uh, application of brain power. So that also goes along with this other narrative of, oh yeah, people of Indian descent are just smarter than everybody else. But it's the the cultural stream has been set up in a particular way to reward particular kinds of activities and dissuade people from doing other sorts of things. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think it's a combination of what we might call a cultural script and infrastructure, which is or is not available to people and sort of pushes their life chances towards one stream or another. So so this has been interesting. These discussions of athletics and race in America seem, I don't know, I mean, I'm putting on my historian hat here, but they seem strangely reminiscent of some of the concepts of race surrounding slavery uh, in Europe even, going back to the 1600s, 1700s, into the 1800s, especially these depictions of the black male body as somehow closer to a state of nature. Maybe we could tackle these questions next episode. Maybe we could. But for now, that'll be all for this episode and this year. We'll be back in 2018 with more history, science, race, and humor. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Race. I'm Jim Binden, physical anthropologist. I'm Eric Peterson, the historian of science. And I'm Tina, the cultural anthropologist. Please check out our Facebook page and leave a comment about what you'd like to hear about from us in 2018. And if you like this podcast, tell someone about it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.